It's been a big week for people saying profoundly idiotic things on social media. And because I hate myself, I'm obviously on Twitter reading as many of them as I can cram into my stupid little eyeballs. In order to call this doom scrolling productive, uh, I'm going to base this episode around a particularly stupid hot take I saw. Uh, don't worry, we're not going to be diving into the quagmire of American politics. We're all tired and nobody wants to hear me try and cobble together a take that isn't. Can a meteor just hit us, please? Side note, if there are any large rocks listening, hurtling through space, looking for a diversion, hit me up. Physically. <laughs> um, instead, we're going to go to the movies. Specifically, we're going to take a look at the recent release, Fire Island, a good movie which has somehow managed to generate some supremely stupid tweets about feminism and the Bechdel test, and we're going to dig into that, I guess. I'm Alex, this is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition, and today I'm thinking about the Bechdel test. On the 3rd of June, 2022, queer rom-com Fire Island was released on streaming platform Hulu. A short summary would be to say that the film is a queer retelling of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice set in the gay village on Fire Island. A slightly longer summary would be to say that it's a gay rom-com which casts the film's writer, comedian Joel Kim Booster, as Noah, and SNL cast member Bowen Yang as Howie, the film's Elizabeth and Jane Bennett. Noah is happy to be hot and available, while Howie is yearning for romance. Their annual summer on Fire Island is disrupted by the appearance of Charlie, the Mr. Bingley archetype played by James Scully, and Will, a very hot Mr. Darcy in the tradition of all hot Mr. Darcy's, played by Conrad Ricamora. It manages to bitingly dissect the racist politics of the queer party scene while also keeping the charming fun you'd expect from an Austin retelling in the rom-com genre. It's a skillful adaptation that's notable for both the sharp writing and the unique snapshot of queer men's culture it provides. If you're in Australia, it's streaming on Disney+, and I'd recommend checking it out. So that nice thing happened. Uh, and then on the 6th of June, 2022... Hannah Rosen, the editorial director for New York Magazine's podcasts, tweeted, So, at Hulu, hashtag Fire Island Movie gets an F-minus on the Bechdel test in a whole new way. Do we just ignore the drab lesbian stereotypes because cute gay Asian boys? Is this the revenge for all those years of the gay boy best friend? Which is just... Such a spectacularly stupid take, I don't even really know where to start with it. For the uninitiated, the Bechdel test has three basic principles. The first is that the film should feature two women. The second is that those women have at least one conversation. And the third is that that conversation must be about something other than a man. And sure, Fire Island does not meet those standards. We'll circle back to that later. But, like, Fire Island is a Pride and Prejudice adaptation featuring Asian-American leads talking about the overlapping complexities of gay fucking and racism. 
I don't think anyone watching would reasonably look at what was happening on the screen and go, my God, this genre is so played out. I am so sick of seeing multifaceted takes on the lived experience of racism in the queer community in my rom-coms of all places. Ugh. Like, wow. (laughs) What a uniquely dog shit opinion. (laughs) It's impressive for both its ingenuity and the confidence with which it was tweeted at 40,000 followers. (laughs) Uh, Rosen, of course, was resoundingly slammed by anyone with two brain cells to rub together. It was such a chaotically bad take that even Alison Bechdel, the creator of the Bechdel test being referenced by Rosen, had to weigh in with a response. She tweeted, Okay, I just added a corollary to the Bechdel test. Two men talking to each other about the female protagonist of an Alice Munro story in a screenplay structured on a Jane Austen novel equals a pass. Hashtag Fire Island. Hashtag Bechdel test. Which, bless her, is an objectively funny response, but it did make me want to dig into the Bechdel test a little bit more. It's obviously not designed to deal with the nuance of something like Fire Island. Uh, So what does it do? How did it come about? And why are people so fixated on using it as a gotcha moment at the most inappropriate of times? Let's get into it. So, uh, from 1983 to 2008, Alison Bechdel penned a strip comic called Dykes to Watch Out For, which serialized the goings-on of a group of characters, mostly lesbians, living in a medium-sized city in the US. In and of itself, the strip was famous as a long-running queer publication, but circa 1985, an installment called The Rule was published. In it, Two women appear to be on a date, and one of them suggests catching a movie. The other one says that they have this rule where they'll only watch movies that meet three basic requirements. And I quote, One, it has to have at least two women in it who, two, talk to each other about, three, something besides a man. She then says that the last movie that she was able to watch was Alien because the two women in it talk about the monster. The women decide to give up and eat popcorn at home, while posters of muscle-bound machine-gun-holding men advertising movie titles like The Mercenary, The Vigilante, and The Barbarian scroll past them in the background. The comic marquee gives thanks to Liz Wallace, uh, Bechdel's karate training partner, who devised the test and was inspired by Virginia Woolf's 1929 essay A Room of One's Own. And that's it. That's the Bechdel test or the Bechdel-Wallace test, as Bechdel herself has stated that she prefers. In this context, Bechdel has described it as a little lesbian in-joke in an alternative feminist newspaper. The punchline in a queer setting being that the only possible way to imagine a queer woman on screen was with something that met the rules outlined in the strip, but then you've only got Alien, which came out six full years before the comic was published. It's a quick zinger. After all, there's only so much that you can achieve in a short strip. And read visually as intended, you can see how the popularity of the blockbuster action genre in the mid-1980s provides the groundwork for this type of thought experiment. Action movies were having something of a golden age, and Arnold Schwarzenegger was busy creating a whole new standard of buff for those leading men. Those films don't leave a lot of space for women. (laughs) But if all it is is a quick, funny page in a feminist paper from the 80s, 
How did we end up with dog shit takes on race and queerness in popular cinema in 2022? Great question. (laughs) Uh, The cursory digging that I did while trying to write this can't seem to give me a clear answer about exactly how and when the term Bechdel test started to gain popularity. Aside from the fact that Google Trends indicate it really kicked up a notch in the mid to late 2000s. Bechdel seems to believe that it was adopted by young feminist filmmakers and academics as a quick litmus test for whether there were women present in a film. Not even like good or well-written women, just women. (laughs) From what I can tell, it made the jump from film circles into the mainstream lexicon in the late 2000s which coincided with the release of Bechdel's hugely influential and wonderful 2006 graphic novel Fun Home, and with the rise of social blogging platforms, which allowed normal people to circulate their film opinions to an audience in an unprecedented way. More people were introduced to Bechdel's work, and they were able to apply it and share it more easily. People built websites like BechdelTest.com, a database that indicates whether a film passes the test, Uh, According to the database of 9,329 movies, 56.7% meet all three criteria. Swedish cinemas introduced the Bechdel test to their ratings. The test was incorporated into grant criteria for filmmakers, discussed endlessly in the media, and used as a blunt instrument by tweens on Tumblr to prove the moral superiority of their media consumption. Which is problematic. Taken in its simplest form, the test only covers three specificities, presence of women, dialogue between women, and the fact that they don't talk about a man. Lots of movies don't pass that test, including things that would be considered classics. If you're someone who hasn't spent a lot of time thinking about the media you consume or how you consume it, then it might name an absence you felt while watching something that you weren't quite able to articulate which is what Virginia Woolf is naming in her essay, A Room of One's Own. She says, It's strange to think that all the great women of fiction were not only seen by the other sex, but seen only in relation to the other sex. And how small a part of a woman's life is that? That's not nothing, you know? Being able to identify that absence that might otherwise pass you by is the first step towards asking for more and for better. But it's really only the first step. (laughs) The problem with Hollywood and with modern cinema is not just no women. (laughs) I'll give you an example. Let's all stop and think for a moment about the film Moonlight. Now, Moonlight is an exceptional piece of media for a lot of reasons. It's shot beautifully. It tells a really complicated and heartbreaking story about queerness and poverty and race in America The performances are incredible, and perhaps most importantly, it was responsible for having all of the actors and directors of La La Land sheepishly walk off stage with their tail between their legs while it rightfully claimed its place as best picture at the Oscars. (laughs) Look, frankly, anything that's a catalyst for such joy in me in the way that seeing La La Land get absolutely wrecked uh, is already a masterpiece and deserves all the accolades that we can give it. But also, Moonlight is a significant film, culturally. It's hard to think of another mainstream film that shows black men and queerness with such tenderness, let alone one that won an Oscar. 
It does not pass the Bechdel test. Godzilla vs. Kong is a movie about Godzilla, a giant lizard, fighting King Kong, a giant ape. Eventually, the large ape and the large lizard realize that they are not enemies and that the true enemy is actually the large mechanical Godzilla built by an evil megacorporation. The mechanical Godzilla is named Mechagodzilla because it is mechanical and a Godzilla. It made $486 million at the box office, mostly from idiots like me who want to see the lizard begin to fight the ape before reaching a place of begrudging respect as two creatures who are bigger than they're supposed to be. This film passes the Bechdel test. (laughs) Now, these examples are funny to contrast because one film is so obviously wonderful and the other one is so obviously a Godzilla movie. But the distinction here is not even particularly related to the quality of the films. Specifically, it's about the content. Women might be talking to each other in Godzilla vs. Kong, but I don't think anyone would reasonably argue that Godzilla vs. Kong is representing a more marginalized perspective than Moonlight. I don't think anyone would reasonably argue that Godzilla vs. Kong is a more socially significant film than Moonlight. Anyone attempting to do so would be arguing in such bad faith that I would encourage them to reconsider seeing the thought through and tweeting it out to 40,000 people. (laughs) Because the problem with Hollywood is not just no women, it's white supremacy, it's cultural imperialism, it's heteronormativity. It's all of the factors that mean that while Godzilla vs. Kong already has a television spin-off series in the works, you'll likely not see something that even gently grazes the space that Moonlight occupies for another decade at least. Meaningful contributions to a diverse cinematic canon that discusses the intersection of race, gender, and sexuality are not being captured by the Bechdel test. Hell, if you want to walk it out a little further, it doesn't even really measure the meaningful contributions of women playing a central role in a film. Writing about the gaps highlighted by applying a more rigorous academic scrutiny to the Bechdel test Jennifer O'Meara points out that the test doesn't measure the type of women who are granted dialogue or how it's presented. Now, look, I don't want to get into an argument about what does or does not constitute a film in a conventional sense. I'm doing inverted commas here. But O'Meara is using the example of Beyonce's Lemonade, which features extended pieces of poetic dialogue from Beyonce in between musical performances. As you hopefully all remember, that dialogue was directed at her husband, Jay-Z, appearing to address his infidelity. It was equal parts angry and hurt, and it allowed her to very publicly take control of a tabloid rumor that had been circulating off and on for years. Jay-Z doesn't get the right of reply in Lemonade. While much of what O'Meara touches on is about exploring the metaphor of the voice and the dexterity of female vocal performance, I think Lemonade is a useful illustration of what can be lost by only looking at a film through the lens of a simple rule. You have a solo performance by a black woman that, in her discussion of a man and her relationship to him, 
also discusses the relationship between black women and American society. It chronicles the achievements of black women in the face of adversity, and it does that even though it isn't in dialogue with anyone else. It's acknowledging a rich inner life, even if some of the turmoil is connected to men, and even if the women that are so thoroughly present and acknowledged in the work do not actually appear in conversation. It's a Bechdel test failure, but it's absolutely a feminist film that centres black women. So the shortcomings of the Bechdel test as applied at a broad scale are pretty obvious. It's testing one thing, it doesn't leave room for nuance, but it does leave a lot of room for people who should know better to have shit takes on films that are doing pretty innovative things otherwise. Obviously, these shortcomings are not actually about the test itself. Alison Bechdel is not going around crowing about the test's successes and telling everyone that they should start using it as the basis for all critique. The tweet about Fire Island should be evidence enough of that, but if not, here's another quote. She says, You can have a feminist movie that doesn't meet the criteria, and you can have a movie that meets the criteria and isn't feminist. It's not scientific or anything. It's a bit surprising what does and doesn't pass. I think what's most fascinating for me about the Bechdel test personally is its explosion in popularity. Again, once you get over the initial, oh, that's what that is, feeling of noticing that there are less women on screen generally, there's still so much more work needed before you're pulling together a thought that's more complicated than, wait, I'm not on the screen. But people seem determined to shoehorn it into conversations that absolutely do not require it. Thinking about Fire Island again, what is gained from asking why is there only one woman in a film that is ostensibly applying Jane Austen principles to gay circuit parties? What would writing some more girls in there do for anyone beyond convoluting a pretty tight script? Sweet fuck all is the answer. (laughs) I think the appeal of the Bechdel test is this. People want their consumption of goods and services to be somehow more ethical, in inverted commas, to avoid having to deal with the complexities of actually solving a problem. So they choose the easiest possible measure of success in order to feel superior and as though they're doing the correct thing. The problem with Hollywood is complex and multifaceted. It involves having to deal with issues like white supremacy or heteronormativity that take a lot of work or, heaven forbid, might mean having to sit through a solid 90-minute film that does not feature a single person that looks like, talks like, or thinks like you or anyone you know. And if you're a white woman, that might involve having to sit with the personal discomfort of knowing that you're still higher on the social pecking order than almost any other human being. Oof. Sounds a lot like having to acknowledge my own privileges and shortcomings. You know what's easier? Applying a three-step test to determine whether or not women are in the film. God, I can feel the superiority coursing through my veins already. I'm fucking invincible. (laughs) Look, the test in and of itself is not a bad joke. It's not even a bad start to a thought experiment. It just can't be the only thought, or you sound like a real asshole. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, uh, those are my thoughts on the Bechdel test. Can we all stop dragging Alison Bechdel back to Twitter and forcing her to defend her almost 40-year-old comic strip now? Go and watch Fire Island or something. It's very funny. They'll have a great time. Anyway, uh, if you have recently noticed that not all films are about you and you want to work through that with someone, talk to me about it next time you see me at the pub. Peace. Peace.